0: The title of the book, The Broker's Bible,
1: The Way Back to Profit for Today's Real Estate Company. And the author, Nancy Gardner. And Nancy joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Nancy. Good morning. Well, you're a veteran in this field, uh, and we'll ask you about that as well in just a moment. Uh, You understand what's going on today. Uh, There's been a lot of changes. Um, People want to buy a home, but there's You know, there's apprehensions, there's anxiety, and and the banks and other lending institutions like Fannie and Freddie are putting up uh, more requirements than in the past. So it's a lot of unknown out there, but that's what's great about your book. It's a how-to book. This is what you say. The Broker's Bible is a guide to profitability for today's real estate companies. Practical and effective initiatives to implement that will affect their bottom line. A return to profit in an industry where many are struggling. Insight into the whys making these initiatives necessary. The how-to application. And that we want to emphasize. This is a how-to book. Nancy, tell us a little bit about your background.
2: Well, Steve, I've been in the real estate industry since 1979. First as a real estate agent and then into management And then I started this work in January of 97, forming my own firm in 2001. And um, I think working on all those levels gives you an incredible insight into, you know, not only the history of the industry, things we've done right and wrong over time, but also, you know, what it takes to fix it. And um, that's the hard part. It's the doing the work to fix this issue for real estate companies, because many of them are not profitable right now. They're hanging on by their thumbs particularly if they have less than 100 agents, and um, they don't have the training, they don't have anything being offered to them that shows them a way out of this. That's what the broker Bible, Broker's Bible does.
1: So all the rules have changed, all the way of doing business has changed, and there's a, according to uh, what you write, according to a recent study by the Harvard Business Review, there's really a crisis of trust right now.
2: That's the huge issue. It's, the real estate industry has long been agent-centric. In other words, everything they did was to attract and keep real estate agents because that's how they generate revenue, through the real estate agent. Well, you know, the big shift is the consumer has options that they never had anymore in terms of getting that information, how to access it, it used to be, that a real estate agent could stand in front of the MLS, which is, you know, the listing service, and say, no, you can't go there without me. Well, that's not true anymore. The consumer has as much and sometimes even more information than real estate agents do. So they know they have options now. They're better informed. You pair that with the fact that since this Great Recession began, they're really angry about how all of this stuff went down. They don't believe it's fair They're scared about their own futures, and you know they've seen their own investments damaged or you know disappear, and you know so they're going they're more demanding. So you look at an industry that's really focused on an agent, and you say to them, okay, you better start paying attention to the consumer, and they're scratching their heads, and you know they say a lot about customer service. Yet when you read the surveys that are uh, the consumer surveys that you know consumers are not very satisfied with what they get from the real estate agent that they use. And I could tell you lots of stories about that that would, you know, put the hair up on the back of your neck. But And so this has to be a shift. They have to really have a paradigm shift in terms of, you know, who their customer is and and also understand that if they if they begin to train their people and put programs in place that the consumer really wants and values, you know, making that shift from the agent to the consumer, they're going to be the best company for an agent to work for. So they're gonna they're gonna hit two birds with one stone.
1: Now you also make a simple statement that is loaded with truth, with reality and and real estate companies obviously have to deal with this. This doesn't put up a permanent roadblock, but it is a very well, it is a statement that really does put present a lot of challenges high unemployment equals low numbers of home purchases
2: we're starting to see you know a little improvement in the job you know job numbers um, but then you have to look at okay what kind of jobs are we creating you really have to look at the layers of all this and you know major job creation has been in the service industry we're grateful that we have you know these jobs available but do they pay enough money for somebody to get back into the housing industry and again if you go th- if you look at what's happening in terms of financing in our industry those liquidity requirements i mean they're 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 tougher than they've been in a long time and they're going to get a lot tougher so you've gotta, you're going to you're going to have to have a higher down payment you're going to really be looked at uh, you know backwards and forwards before somebody decides to give you a mortgage and because of that these jobs that are being created haven't done a whole lot. I mean, what did help us was a little, uh, the stimulus program, the tax credit that bumped up our numbers for a while. But as soon as that program went away, so did our numbers. And we're now back at 2008 pricing, which is, was considered to be the lowest point for the industry.
1: And at the same time, it is a buyer's market.
2: And you know, this it's interesting. Um, Markets right now are spotty, and what I mean by spotty is that um, there are some areas of the country that were less hard hit by this recession than others. Um, If you go to some parts of the Midwest, they their unemployment numbers sit at, you know, less than 3%. Um, If you go to, there's some pockets around major metropolitan areas. Because of their desirability, they didn't suffer as much in this downturn. And so you have to have somebody that can really do the numbers for you to understand, is it a buyer's market? Or are you looking in an area where it's a seller's market? And in, in, I have clients in Berkeley, California, for example. They don't, They only have about two months of inventory in Berkeley. Well, that's unheard of in some areas. I mean, they have, you know, 14 months of inventory, 18 right. months of inventory. So you really have to look at it at a... As a case-by-case basis, it's not, you know, pantyhose, it's not one-size-fits-all here. You have to have somebody that can really take the numbers apart for you so you know what the situation is and how it affects your ability to buy and sell.
1: Well, let's talk about some of the how-tos. Your book has a a number of chapters that focus on the specifics of what you're advising real estate companies to do, Mm -hmm. right down to, as you call them, budget metrics that matter most. Now, (laughs) these are obviously numbers that are extremely important.
2: Yes, they are. They really, I mean, you know, Salespeople, by and large, not all salespeople, I don't mean to mean to generalize too much, but salespeople, by and large, are not numbers people. They're people people. And they don't necessarily pay attention to the numbers. I'm not saying by that that they don't understand whether or not they're making or losing money. They certainly know that. But there has to be an increase in understanding in terms of what you should be watching. You don't have to micromanage everything, uh, every budget category. But you do need to know which ones are significant and which ones are likely to affect your bottom line the most. And that's what I lay out here. I really put it, you know, in perspective so that they understand what the number means and how it affects whether or not they'll make a profit at the end of the year. Well, I think it your, makes it a little more manageable for them.
1: Under your title for chapter, Business Planning, mm-hmm. I like this statement. The best way to predict your future is to create it.
2: Yeah. it's You know, and it's the hardest part of the program to implement. Um, and, you know, we're, we're all human, and there are lots of layers to us. But the truth is 95% of the people don't plan. And you know they spend more time planning a vacation than they do you know the rest of their lives. And and I think there's you know there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'm not going to go into that. But truly, the planning, you know, it's the bo- it's the foundation for what you're going to be doing. It's it, it's so that you're not you have a track. And 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 I do believe that the best plans are adaptive. I don't I don't maintain that you should have a plan and that and that you never look right or left the rest of the year. I, I don't believe that. I believe that. Again, you, you use this plan, it's a guide, it's your roadmap. It doesn't mean that you don't change course if you see something happening that needs, it needs correction. But you, you've got to have something out there that tells you this is where I'm going. And, the, and, and a good business plan, not only, you know, most of the time when we talk about planning in the industry, we talk about bottom line goals. And we, you know, where do you want to be? How much money do you want to make by the end of the year? And what, you know, but what we also have to look at is what's the skill required to accomplish that? And then what do I have to do Monday through Friday in order to meet those ends? And that's where we fall short. We just put the numbers out there, and we think that the numbers are going to hold the ground for the rest of the t- year, and they won't. You have to have its three parts, its goals, its, it's skill, and its um, activity, what we're going to do Monday through Friday.
0: You
1: have a chapter on hiring sales management. You have another Mm -hmm. chapter, uh, agent coaching program. Now, Mm -hmm. that's very individualized, isn't it?
2: Yes, it's one-on-one. I mean, and there are a lot of coaching models out there, um, group coaching, other things. I really believe, I, I think, let me first say that the hiring the sales management is probably one of the most important chapters in the book. I don't believe that right now real estate companies realize how important strong sales management is to their success. I, I firmly believe from my experience in doing this work that strong management, supportive management that provides that agent coaching as as one, one part of, the, of their support is the biggest magnet for uh, attracting new talent into their firms. And uh, it gets overlooked all the time. The attention gets put on the agent, and, and certainly we, sh- we, should, we should be training and coaching agents. I'm a big proponent of that, but we should also be training and coaching our management because that's, that's the weak link, sadly. There, and, I, and I've, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to provide people with who understand that we have to get better at what we do if we're going to be profitable, They have an avenue that that they can look at that can provide them some answers along that because the management training is is slim to none. Agent coaching is extremely important. I believe it's the highest level of support a brokerage can offer an individual agent. That's time one-on-one between management and agent looking at their goals, what they want to accomplish, you know, monetarily and otherwise during the year, and them sitting down once a week, once every two weeks with them to <clears throat> look at what they're doing. Are they on track? Are they off track? What's getting in the way, and how they can be of help? And 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 truly, it's it's an amazing tool for uh, increasing production and thusly profit.
1: And of course, along with that, as you were saying, uh, not only hiring the best sales management and of course through that and training them then of course to hire the best agents
2: absolutely it's it's really a talent you know and, and developing that talent is extremely important to profitability today you cannot look away from it it you know used to be that real estate was really a relationship business it was, it was all based on relationships if you knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody that could refer an agent to you, you just sort of took for granted that this was going to be okay. Well, the stakes are a lot higher today. This, you know, this relationship uh, angle is still, you know, workable, and it's still very useful, but there has to be skill behind it. It can't just be based on I know somebody who knew somebody who said, you know, they worked with you and it went okay. That's behind us, but that's the way it used to be, and so... There's, you know, we had a lot more latitude to succeed in our in this industry. That's going away. It's it's becoming, you have to have measurable skills. I mean, you'll see now in, in strong agents who understand this, you'll see in their email signature, they'll say, why Susie Smith gets results or why work with Susie Smith? And you click on that, and what you're going to be shown is their results as compared to market results in general. For example, My days on the market is less than the market in general. My percentage of listings sold is higher than the market in general. My percentage of actual sales price as compared to original list price is lower than the market in general, which translates to I can get results in this market. I know what I'm doing, and and you should listen to me when I give you advice because my results speak to that end.
1: You also have uh, chapters on company training program, and then there's one on uh, management objectives, another one on time management technology, websites and social media and the administrative staff. Well, we are at that point, Nancy, where you need to just tell us where to get your book. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, you can get it at you, pretty much anywhere you buy books. You can get it on Amazon.com. You can go to the um, publisher's website, which is AuthorHouse.com. Um, but, any, you know, you can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Borders. You can, And uh, most people have gotten it on Amazon, I believe. It's just, you know, easy.
1: Well, we appreciate you being with us, Nancy. A lot of great information, a how-to book. Thank you. Thank you. Nancy Gardner, author of her book, The Broker's Bible, The Way Back to Profit for Today's Real Estate Company.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally, Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor, Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Y'all wear
1: your hands, look who's on, it's Dakota Man Keith and he's number one. Now you might think Juan's youth was sad, right. cause he had a
3: death, tear, mummy and dad. Right. But that ain't the case, nope. it wasn't his fate, no, nope. the ones never struggled to communicate. Ha. Y'all your hands, look who's on, <laughs> it's Dakota Man Keith and
0: number one. It's That Keith Juan Show on Toganet.com Wednesday nights at 8, 7 central. Every week, That Keith Juan Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Juan and the show, go to his website KeithWanWANN.com Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number one, uh-huh. Keith number one. Uh-huh. Everybody put the code of on. Uh-huh. Number number one, uh-huh. Keith number one. Uh-huh. Everybody put the code of on. Don't miss that Keith Wine show. Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on TogiNet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world.
1: The title of the book, Pounce, a children's book, and the author is Erica Engabretsen. And Erica joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Erica. Hi. Well, this is going to be fun a uh, true story to some degree about Pounce, uh, a little cat. You say. A little cat with big dreams. In his everyday situation, he finds himself daydreaming of scaling tall mountains, exploring dark caves and more. Everywhere he goes, he dreams of what else he could do. He's full of self-confidence and knows that one day he will really do it all. What a great theme. What, how did you come up with that? And who's Pounce?
4: How did I come up with that? Well, I came up with that from Pounce, who was... real cat that I had. I got him as a kitten when I was about nine years old. And in his everyday situations, he did these things that were like climbing up to the top of the front door or um, hiding in paper grocery bags and things like that. And I have real photos of him from back in those days when I had him. And In thinking about writing stories and images that come to mind, I remembered all those pictures that we had when I was young and used that to kind of translate into an imaginary story about what a cat might really be thinking while they're sitting on top of the front door and And, hiding in the linen closet and so forth.
1: And personifying them with human thoughts.
4: Yes. Or yeah.
1: fears, or, of course, he doesn't sound like he has any fear.
4: <laughs> I think he is fearless.
1: Right. And that's a good, and you know, I mean, that's the kind of theme that you especially feel uh, you want to be able to project that kind of theme.
4: Right. Um, I don't know if it's so much fearless, but the willingness to take on risk. I think we all have fears about something deep down, but it's if you can conquer those or put those aside enough to really be able to imagine what you can do and not be so afraid that you won't try to do it.
1: Yeah, you say you remember being young. You were always encouraged by your family. You were never told that you could not do something. That's really important.
4: I have a really amazing family. I don't remember ever being told... That I couldn't do something, unless, of course, it was against the rules, Um, you know, like riding my bike after dark, which is a bad idea for a kid. But, you know, anything I wanted to do, where I wanted to go to college, what I wanted to be, um, you know, for a while I thought I wanted to be a chef and go to culinary school, and then I turned out to be an accountant. But whatever it was that I picked, my family was always supportive.
1: Now you also feel very uh, uh, concerned, especially about young girls in their self-esteem and confidence. Now, why?
4: There, I, I I'm not a um, analyst of this type of thing, but I do know that there are studies that have shown that for girls, self-esteem drops by as much as twice as much as it does for adolescent boys, and. Um, things like eating disorders, um, about 90% of eating disorders are found in girls as a result of poor self-image and, um, situations like that. So, as the mother of two girls, I think it's really important to to continue to build confidence and self-esteem and encourage our girls to be successful and, you know, pursue whatever they want to. I think it's really important for us to encourage them and not let them um, succumb to these self-images and the perceptions that society puts on girls about what they need to be and what they need to do. And um, so I really try to um, do that with my own girls and support them in everything that they want to accomplish.
1: And start at a young age teaching them even through the mind and actions of a cat.
4: hmm Absolutely. I think we, we spend countless hours each week reading books and looking at pictures. And um, I, I've read pounds. Talents- a couple times in schools. I read at both of my daughter's schools on Read Across America Day. And when we were talking about the book, I said, do you think a cat could really be on top of the door? And they all said, no, that's not possible. And I said, why not? <laughs> and, so it, um, and then I showed them the real photographs of Pounce sitting on top of the door. And They kind of had this aha moment, you know. These are five- and six-year-olds we're talking about, but they went, wow, he really could do that. If a cat really can do that, you know, what can I do? And we spent a lot of time then with them using their imaginations and thinking about what's an ordinary situation that they do and what could they imagine they were doing and what do they want to do, what do they dream about. So it was was actually a really fun day to do that with all those kids.
1: And you've really gone the extra mile because you've established a foundation to deal with this very important issue.
4: I can't take sole credit for that. the um, the The real credit for the starting of the Pie Club Foundation goes to Leslie Lowe, who was a um, schoolmate of mine in college. and um, five of us back in two thousand and five established the Pie Club Foundation. And PI is an acronym for Potential inf- Inspiration and Empowerment, and we're a nonprofit organization that provides esteemed scholarships for adolescent girls. And we send them off to camps and um, situations where, where they're put in situations to um, challenge them and build courage and confidence and self-esteem. So it's, it's been really satisfying and fun to be a part of PI Club.
1: And you also feel strongly about parents leading by example and showing their children how to take chances and risks.
4: Yeah, I think having kids really opens up your eyes. I have, you know, for many years lived in my own kind of safe little world and had my job and went to work every day and was just in my routine. But when I had kids, I started hearing myself saying these things. And thinking, hmm, I'm not sure if I'm really doing what I'm telling my kids they should do. Uh, You know, like saying, if I ask them to do something and they say they can't do it. I said, well, you can't say you can't do it. You haven't tried yet. You have to try and work at it. And then if it doesn't work out, then you can say, you know, I couldn't do that. But you can't just straight out of the chute say you can't do something. So, you know, I was toying with the idea of writing stories and Instead of saying, well, I could never get a book published, I did some research and figured it out, and here we are having an interview about a book that I published. So um, I have found that it's important to walk the walk, so to speak, instead of just talking the talk when you preach to your kids what they should do.
1: What do your kids think about the book?
4: They like it. My little one loves the part about getting in the correct pouncing position and shaking your hiney. And pouncing all over the room, getting everything. I think that's her favorite part.
1: Now, are you planning to write more?
4: Um, I have written several other stories. Um, I I do have another one I'd like to publish. It's another one about a cat, um, but about a cat that I had for many, many years, um, 16 years, I think. And um, so she was part of her family when my daughters were born, and she was the only pet that they knew for, from birth through their whole lives up until the time that she died about a year and a half ago and um, it's kind of a memoir to her and um, it started out as a poem I wrote for my daughter to help her get closure about Sage's death and to be able to remember her so it's I think it's actually really nice it's kind of a beautiful little poem that I turned into a story so I look forward to getting to publish that one someday soon
1: The uh, last message that you would like to leave with people that we'll talk about in this interview anyway, don't let society limit, really, you know, your potential, right? What others perceive you must be or should be.
4: Right. Um, Yeah, that goes to you know, some of the comments about girls and their self-esteem and the stereotypes about what women are supposed to be. And also, you know, in looking at myself for the last 17 years, I've been an accountant. And even I have, I think, tended to stereotype myself that way as I kind of fell into that daily routine. And I'm very organized. I'm a type A personality. I'm a doer. I love numbers and um, I forgot about all the creativity I had as a child, and I think it's important to still remember that inner part of you or the other sides of you that society might not see, and recognize those, and you know, not be afraid to dream about what you can achieve, and still um, make that other part of yourself known and and alive. You know, I found that. I am creative, still. I do have a lot of creativity, and um I think having children has also sparked that you know they want to do an art project, and I got to come up with something. and <laughs> that's kind of challenging. But when I start thinking about stuff, I find that I can really come up with some some fun projects and creative things for them to do. and um envisioning the illustrations in the book, although I'm not an illustrator. All those images came from my mind and just got put on paper by someone else. So, And I, I'm proud of the illustrations. I think they oh, are Oh, they just bring everything to life. Yes,
1: very good. They bring yeah, it to life. Yeah, the
4: illustrator really did a great job. I was really happy. But he really did translate what was in my mind and my vision and, you know, bring it to life in the book. So,
1: The title of the book? Pounce, and the author is erica engelbretson and erica tell us how to get your book
4: well you can find it on my website at dot engelbretson.com and it is also available at com and on amazon and hopefully soon we will be getting into bookstores but right now it's available online through those three sources
1: well, thank you very much for being with us. Very interesting and congratulations.
4: Thank you very much.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages.
5: People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes, and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears, just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices.
0: Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com.
5: The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune into Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us.
0: For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com.
5: Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll
4: Countdown with Alex Brown.
0: Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Authorhouse. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The
1: title of the book, An Advisor's Guide to Private Annuities. And the author, F. Bentley Mooney Jr. And Bentley joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bentley. Good money, Steve. Want to read a few things that you have written just to set the stage for our discussion. You say this book may be the only complete collection of law and tactics on the use and misuse of private annuities. It is written for the professional advisor, the attorney, accountant, financial planner, and others, so it is necessarily more detailed than most laypersons would find tolerable, To keep it readable, however, I present the information directly to the reader as the end user rather than switching back and forth from factual presentations to suggestions on how to present it to the client. So it is complicated, it is complex, but at the same time, it is so critical to understand this valuable tool, right? Right. Give us some of your professional background, Bentley, uh, so we understand your many, many years in dealing with this kind of financial uh, strategy.
3: Uh, I have been practicing law in the trust and states area and taxation uh, for nearly 40 years. I have a Master of Laws degree in taxation, and I'm certified by the State Bar of California as a specialist in the estate planning trust and probate law.
1: Now, let's define a private annuity. Go ahead.
3: Well, it's like dad gives son the farm in exchange for son's promise to pay dad $1,000 a month for life. When all is said and done, son owns the farm free and clear. Dad owns a lifetime stream of income. Dad is son's unsecured creditor, and son can do anything he wants to with the farm. The income is a product of um, annuity table calculation that's published under the regulations for the Internal Revenue Code. And it's modified month to month with an assigned interest rate that's announced by the Treasury Department. Right now, those interest rates are at all time low, 3%. It was uh, 11% as recently as 1991. And uh, the interest rate keeps the payout rate low enough so that the uh, net return on the investment of the exchange property um, is higher than the payout rate, so you don't have to invade principal and thereby run the risk of outliving the money. So why I is I think the- I delved into a little uh, too much minutia there?
1: <laughs> well, why is the interest rate
3: so much lower now? Just because of the economy, you know, the Fed is uh, charging the banks uh, zero to a quarter of a percent. And that translates all through the economy. Uh, this is called a 7520 20 rate. Um, and it's announced uh, monthly by the uh, Treasury. And that's the interest rate that you use with the annuity factor to calculate the payout rate for annuities signed in that month.
1: How do you determine if a private annuity is best for you as the, you know, as the uh, saver, the investor, as the benefactor?
3: Well, here's what it does, and then you just figure out which benefit the the client needs. Um, by exchanging property for the annuity, you remove that property from the, the annuitant estate for estate tax purposes. It's not a gift. It's a purchase, and so there's no gift tax. It's not in the estate, so there's no estate tax. And with neither a gift nor an estate tax, there can't be a generation-skipping transfer tax. Those are the three wealth transfer taxes. To avoid all three of them. In addition, if you exchange an appreciated capital asset for the annuity, you're able to spread the capital gain over the life expectancy of the annuitant instead of paying the tax all up front. Uh, so if you're 65 years old, your life expectancy is 20 years, you just report 1 20th of the capital gain each month, each year. Uh, so that's the income tax aspect, the, the asset protection aspect uh, is a product of remedying some of the weaknesses of a domestic uh, private annuity, and uh, take a second on that. The weakness of the domestic private annuity is that when all that transaction is completed, creditors of the son can go after the farm and deprive the son of the ability to pay the annuity. The creditors of dad can go after the income stream and deprive him of the benefit of his bargain. And the son has to pay taxes on the farm's income and then enough after taxes to service the annuity obligation. It's a rare situation that'll permit you to do that without invading principle. So what we do to avoid all three weaknesses has moved the payor, the son, uh, to an offshore no-tax jurisdiction. We use a major corporate trustee, so we don't have to worry about somebody running off the money, uh, and that trustee engages a uh, Swiss bank in, in the situation that I developed uh, to do the portfolio management. So the trust company sells the farm, puts the cash into a portfolio of securities from which to pay the annuity. So now you have professional administration of the plan, professional management of the assets, and it's no tax jurisdiction so that the net return on the portfolio is fully available to service the annuity obligation and thereby minimize the risk of invading principal.
1: Now, when you mention... The phrase offshore, that often causes a
3: lot of people to get nervous. There remains quite a bit of the uh, um, uh, Fortress American America mentality, where the concern is that the minute the check gets 20 feet off the beach, it's at risk. Uh, But that's really not true. Uh, America doesn't have a single bank in the top ten in the world. There's plenty of reliable, professional people and organizations outside the country. And we've used uh, uh, well-established uh, financial centers like um, Isla Man. It's been around doing this for half a century. Uh, fully staffed with, with banking and legal and accounting and management professionals.
1: But it isn't something that you should try on your own. You need to have legal legal uh, advice and guidance.
3: Uh, it's factually and legally intense, and so uh, if it's not done by somebody who's been down that road, you can get in trouble. Uh, there's some bad case law out there built around uh, poor practices and trying to structure these things. Uh, people who do the exchange without even bothering to calculate the annuity or without relating it or, or tying it to the exchange property, all of which can cause the whole transaction to blow up.
1: So I guess the the from a layman's point of view,
3: is there a downside to this? Not that I can see. Well, there is one, if you, especially if you do it for asset protection purposes. You're, you're concerned about something that's facing you right now that might pass with time. And so the, the, the optimal expectation uh, by the annuitant is do the deal and then unwind it after the trouble passes, so you can't do that because uh, once you set it up, you're stuck with it. Uh, So once you exchange that apartment building for the lifetime stream of income, the lifetime stream of income is what you get. The kids get the apartment building or its proceeds.
1: You say that this transaction must be understood in light of market risks and congressional distaste. So Congress doesn't like this kind of approach?
3: Well, Congress isn't so bad as IRS. The... uh, the recent run-up uh, that peaked in 2007 or thereabouts in the real estate market <clears throat> brought out a lot of uh, mutual fund uh, marketing people who um, uh, called this a private annuity. You will know, call this a private annuity trust uh, just because the payor would be an irrevocable gift trust to the kids, and uh, promoted it as a way of bailing out of the real estate market at its peak in order to redeploy into the stock market when it was down. And um, uh, they were making a lot of unsubstantiated claims and wrong claims. And more than that, they were advocating finding the buyer for the property before you even signed the deal, which makes it a step transaction and collapsible by the IRS with full taxation up front. Those things they weren't telling people. And so IRS got pretty heated about it and, um, and began making ugly noises at the tax institutes. And they came out with a proposed regulation, 1.1001-1J, uh, which uh, uh, says that if you do that, if you exchange a, a appreciated property, even in a, well, a properly structured transaction, if you, if you exchange the appreciated capital asset for the annuity, they will force recognition of the gain up front. Now, this is a proposed regulation. It's not law. Uh, but uh, then, it's, by its terms, it's retroactive to 2006 if it ever becomes f- final. Right now, it's stuck in the installment uh, sales section of the IRS uh, where they're still noodling it, but um, it, it may become final at some point. So, the real uh, underlying issue then, assuming this is not a cash transaction to which this is need to apply, uh, is that. Um, uh, the regulation may or may not be enforceable when you do a statutory analysis uh, construction of the statute uh, uh... as to whether or not it really binds the courts i find it fatally flawed i think what will happen if, if the client chooses to face off the irs on this issue instead of succumbing that, that he will probably win and it'll take the IRS back to the open transaction doctrine, which is where we were prior to the current law. Just a minute's worth on that. IRS wanted to do this years and years ago, and they kept losing. The court would say, no, the open transaction doctrine applies, so you shouldn't be required to pay taxes on money that you might not collect. So they allowed the annuity to you know, recover tax basis in the exchange property tax-free. Uh, and, and only then, only when it was fully recovered, was the uh, annuity income taxable. Well, after IRS lost a series of these things, it, uh, it threw in the towel with a revenue ruling, revenue ruling 15974, uh, which says, okay, uh, we'll we'll recognize the gain rateably over the life expectancy of the annuity. and that's been the law ever since sixty nine. Now, this proposed regulation proposes to go back to the original argument, but in my view, the, the, um, the regulation is fatally flawed, and the courts will take us back, if because it revoked 6974, they'll take us back to the prior law, applying the Open Transaction Doctrine. Now, there's no guarantee, but that's where I think the odds are.
1: Another point of how important it is to have uh, legal and professional guidance with this kind of annuity. Absolutely. Now, you make another statement here. This transaction may be the only useful tactic when you face a claim that will consume everything. Help us understand that.
3: Well, at that point, people are saying, how can I save what I've got? You know, let's say you padded the wrong popo at work and you end up with a million-dollar lawsuit that looks like it's uh, going to result in a judgment. And you want to save uh, uh, your second home or your apartment building or stock portfolio or whatever. Uh, if you just transfer it to your brother-in-law, uh, then that's called a fraudulent transfer, and it's been the law for 400 years. Uh, the court can make a finding that it's a fraudulent transfer and require the transferee to return the the property to where the creditor can reach it. So the private annuity applies here because it's not a transfer for for fraudulent transfer purposes. It's a purchase. You just bought something that happens to be beyond the reach of the uh, judgment creditor. And so the judgment creditor has to pursue it where it is assuming the law permits that <clears throat> most common law countries like the other man came into Switzerland well that's not common law it's civil law but they, they won't recognize a foreign judgment based on a theory that's not recognizable in that country And so a statutory remedy like the one I described would not be recognized in that country so the judgment creditor either can't enforce the judgment against the annuity, or would find it economically unfeasible uh, to, to do so. Bentley, we have
1: enough time for some closing thoughts, so what would they be?
3: Well, this can often be the saving grace for the guy who's worked hard, saved his money, but ended up with without enough to retire with any dignity. Um, and so what he can do is Uh, take a piece of property that's not producing income like the acreage he bought, uh, uh, thinking that the expansion of the city around him would reach it in time to give him a nice profit, but it didn't. Or uh, who's built a nice equity and has a home in the city and would like to free up some of that equity in a tax-efficient way uh, to bolster uh, retirement. Uh, For example... I have a client who has um, a home he bought for forty thousand dollars years and years ago. It's gone up in value to about a million. think that happens in California, uh, and uh, he can he can move to uh, Texas where he came from and buy twice the house for half the money. So you get an appraisal on the house. Uh, he takes into account his $500,000 exclusion under section 121 for establishing his basis. and He takes a percentage, the part that's subject to capital gain tax uh, of the house and, and deeds that percentage ownership uh, to the payor in exchange for the annuity. Then the payor and he join in selling the property. He gets his part tax rate, buys the home in Texas. The rest of it generates forty, fifty thousand dollars a year in lifetime income for as long as he or the wife lives, which, together with the social security and a little pension, uh, it leaves, it leaves him able to retire with some measure of dignity.
5: Well,
1: Bentley, we want to thank you for being on Author Talk and helping us to understand the private annuity. The title of the book is "An Advisor's Guide to Private Annuities." Bentley, tell us how to get your book.
3: Uh, Go to the website set up for the book. It's www.bentleymooney.com. B-E-N-T-L-E-Y-M-O-O-N-E-Y. You can see the samples of the book and ordering uh, opportunities.
1: Thanks for being with us, Bentley. Okay, Steve. That was F. Bentley Mooney, Jr. He is the author of his book, An Advisor's Guide to Private Annuities.